When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. You might not know it, but historians can often be an unruly and at times argumentative lot. If you ever have opportunity to pick up any journal that has book reviews in it, historians like to point out, well, what they should have put in that the other historian didn't put in or include, or they differ over interpretation of the events still using the same facts or not necessarily all the same facts and that leads to discussion and debate and argument it's not like they're getting out there and breaking out into fist fights over this kind of stuff but there is disagreement and the thing is sometimes disagreement leads to opportunity so these challenges of people not agreeing on everything by going back and reviewing the evidence used, sometimes we can get a consensus over what happened, a better understanding by being questioned. We live in a time where the historical disagreement now is actually out in public, the public arena. People are fighting over history and how it should be used. What is the story that should be told? And it's gets even uglier when it gets out here in public and and with that in mind i want to i just came across something written that i'm going to read from i'll tell you what it's from after i finish and this is from an introduction and the author wrote in response to this ongoing cultural and political change we sometimes seem to have lost faith in our institutions and leaders. We also seem to have lost a sense of compromise, consensus, and balance. Often the voices of debate have come not from a common middle ground of shared values, but from alienated fringes, from angry partisans who have driven each other to extremes. Battles have raged between the religious right and the politically correct left between preservationists and developers, between blacks and whites, between men and women, whatever middle ground remains seems shaky and unsure, populated by angry special interest groups. Like the nation itself, Texas has experienced all of this turmoil. Now that sounds like something that could have been said today, right? No, actually... This was written in an introduction by George B. Ward. 
and it is an updated edition of Ernest Wallace's 1963 book, Documents of Texas History. Ernest Wallace, David M. Vignes, and George B. Ward in 1994 put out this second edition that holds together a lot of important documents of Texas history, hence the name. And he was describing a time way back then that is completely similar to what we're going on today. And history has become a battlefield, unfortunately, and has been a battlefield for a long time. And we're going to look in this episode and next episode kind of at where these problems arise and consider what are we supposed to do with all this when all we really want to do is understand the past. And with that being said, I, I want to start by looking at an interesting article I found on revisionism by James M. Banner. And this article was titled, All History is Revisionist History. It comes from the summer 2022 issue of Humanities Magazine, which is a publication of the National Endowment for the Humanities. In it, James M. Banner says, Ever since Thucydides dismissed Herodotus, historians have differed about the past. Now, to go back, historians are constantly at odds, wrestling and arguing over the meaning of the facts. They don't hesitate to attack each other, and they engage in debate over the, quote, correct use and purposes of history. They select their own subjects that they are passionate about to study and differ on the correct way of investigating and interpreting these subjects. Yes, history, surprisingly enough, can be a messy arena. Revisionist history, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, this thing called revisionist history started back in the 1960s to challenge the standard romantic, Anglo-centric historical narrative. And these historians were looking at what had been shared over and over and discovered that there is more to the story and that even some of the story might even be a little bit wrong sometimes. A lot of the times, what it was was just incomplete, is missing a part of the story. A piece of the puzzle is not being included to make the picture more full. In Passionate Nation, another book I mentioned by the great author and historian biographer James L. Haley, he writes with regret at the beginning about the more recent quote, revisionism that is tied to political correctness and the woke movement and cancel culture. And I can't necessarily disagree with what's happening. Currently, this woke, and this is the last time I'm going to say it, it's an overused term that is often now meant really as a slur than in anything of real meaning. But so let me be clear about one thing. Being respectful of other human beings and recognizing that this might require a change at times is not a bad thing. 
listening to other people's perspectives is not a bad thing. It is also not a bad thing to question people's motives for doing what they do. Even in the study of history, we need to listen and have conversations. Disagreement and argument is normal. Asking questions is good. If we are lucky and diligent about focusing on the real evidence, we can, if, like I said, we're lucky and consistent, we can find common ground to stand on. And as for the so-called, well, I'm going to break that, woke culture and cancel culture that Haley wrote about, to study history doesn't involve canceling anything or anyone. That's not the purpose of the study of history. To not like something somebody did doesn't mean they should be removed and not considered. That's what history is. You want to have debates about what to do with monuments? That's one thing. But history, that's a different thing. Now, there are many great, exciting, inspirational, and entertaining stories in the study of the past. There are also tales of events that are disappointing and even uncomfortable. To focus on the first is a waste of time. That is, to focus on that only. To focus only on the second one is just as big a waste of time. It is by giving consideration to both that we can learn and grow. This idea that revisionism began in the 1960s, it's accurate for what we're talking about here, and it's a common understanding for good reason. So when I came across this article by James and Banner, I thought he had some interesting ideas in here that I wanted to share. In it, he effectively argues in the essay that since its earliest practice, history has always been revisionist history. Historians for a very long time, he writes, have been, quote, writing coexisting diverse and sometimes sharply clashing accounts of various subjects, accounts that challenged and sought to alter what had been written about them before. Accordingly, historians take it as indisputable that interpretive contests are inherent in all of their efforts to advance historical understanding. What's more, historians are of the abiding conviction that robust, free arguments about the reality, significance, and meaning of the past should be cherished as an integral element of an open society like the one ours strives to be. First, let's consider the distinction that exists between the past and history. The past is what has happened, and it is gone forever. It cannot be replicated perfectly. To understand it requires a dependence on evidence, sources, that are pretty much never complete, and at times they can be contradictory. This is where historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, and others enter the scene and work their Sherlockian investigations. And by sifting through the evidence and interpreting and explaining their findings, we get a better understanding. These findings, narratives, and analysis are sometimes still contradictory. As Baker explains, history is what people make of the forever gone past out of surviving documents and artifacts, human recall, and such items as photographs, films, and the sound recordings 
Indeed, history is created by the application of human thought and imagination to what's left behind. And because each historian is an individual human being, differing by sex and gender, origin, nationality, ethnicity, and community, nurture, education, and culture, wealth and occupation, politics and ideology, mind, disposition, sensibility, and interest, each living at a distinct time and a distinct place as a community of professionals, they come to hold different views, have different purposes, create different interpretations, and put forth their own distinctive understandings of the past. Now, historians are not some special class of being. They are normal people, and they are changed as the world itself changes. This has an effect on historical interpretation. Interpretations of the past, history, change and adjust with the changes and adjustments of the world, society, and culture. This is often seen as a change in interest into what is relevant in the present. Again, to quote Baker, works that don't speak to the times in which they're created are likely to have short shelf lives. So while the ideal is to be as fair and unbiased as possible, it would be a mistake to always expect it. Baker said, as hard as they may try to keep their own hopes and views out of what they write, historians like others tried to find meaning in the past. And when they find it for themselves, they wish to share it with others, their students, readers, and viewers. If they don't, they fail in one of their principal aims, to make knowledge of the past illuminate, deepen, and enrich the present. Now, Baker contends that what we're calling revisionist history appeared way back at the very birth of written history. It wasn't he says, as many allege, the product of the radicalism of the 1960s. And it wasn't springing from the political left. Instead, he says, starting with Herodotus and Thucydides, the celebrated Greek founders of extended historical writing in the West, it actually goes back 2,500 years. And since then, it has occupied no settled position on the ideological spectrum. And in fact, has gained as many interpretive wins for conservative arguments as for liberal ones. Now, this practice of history, this discipline of history, the study of history, it traces its roots back to the guy that's called the father of history, Herodotus. And he wrote his great work around the year 430 B.C. And it didn't take long for someone to step in and say, no, that's not quite right, and revise his work. A younger contemporary, early historian Thucydides, dismissed Herodotus' work as, quote, a prize essay to be heard for the moment, attractive at truth's expense. For Thucydides, history should maintain a tight focus on warfare, statecraft, leadership, and politics, its chief method being reliance on written texts and the direct observations of participants, its aims to instruct and only secondarily to please its readers. In addition, he thought, it should be entirely secular. Gods were of no use for explanatory purposes. Now, Thucydides was conservative in his focus, and Baker writes that his subjects, methods, and aims held the field of historical study effectively unopposed for the next 
2,300 years. The renowned historian Donald Kagan stated that in this way, Thucydides was the first revisionist historian, but his revisionism of Herodotus became the norm. Then we get to the 1960s. After 2,300 years, people began to embrace historical subjects that Herodotus would have approved of. He would have approved of social and cultural history, the history of women, the history of the laboring people, African Americans, Latinos, gays, lesbians, and others have been greatly enlarged attention. Baker also says, needless to say, the emergence of all people as historical subjects has been a source of public and political friction. It also lies at the roots of the negative use of the otherwise neutral term revisionist history. One more extended quote by Baker that I, I really like here. He says that the most common source of revisionist thinking arises from shifts in perspective. The classic American example of repeated shifts of this sort concerns the enduring complex and deeply consequential debates over the causes and consequences of the Civil War. Since 1860, interpretations of that vast contest have mutated in concert with changes in American politics, law, attitudes, and society, changes especially relating to race. Similarly, over the past half-century, the emergence to political, economic, cultural, and social authority of women, African Americans, and other people previously omitted from historical consideration, plus the appointment of members of those groups to academic faculties and senior positions in other cultural institutions, have led scholars to learn more about those groups' histories. The results have been profound. Historians now take it for granted that it's impossible to understand any part of the past without taking into account the realities of all and all kinds of people. And that is what revisionism is. And I see a lot of people get upset about revisionism. They say it's attacking and destroying. Real good history, that is just what we are doing now. It is revisionist history, but it doesn't mean to destroy it means to paint a bigger picture. Most historians recognize that it is their job to make a better understanding available of the past. As Baker says, to create an understanding of the past that speaks to the living. And as I said before, argument is normal. After debate and discussion and argument, we can sometimes reach common ground, a consensus. One of the current debates is over what date we should assign to the beginning of American history. The first settlements of the people from Asia dating back at least 20,000 years in the territory now comprising the contiguous United States, or 1492, the year of Columbus's voyage. How about the 1565 Spanish settlement at today's San Augustine, Florida, the oldest continuously occupied site of European habitation in the lower 48 states? Or, or how about Spain's establishment of an outpost near the lands that are today Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1598? How about the 1607 English settlement at Jamestown, Virginia? The 1619 introduction of race slavery in that colony? Or 
Others say 1776. That's definitely the year we should focus on, the year of the Declaration of Independence. Or what about the year that Puerto Rico was first settled in 1508? It is a part of the United States, after all. And then going back to the beginning, and rightly so, you might think. The United States has been inhabited for thousands of years by the native nations whose descendants have fought and died with honor in the wars of the United States. Why should the continent's history begin with the rival of outsiders? Everyone involved in these debates are using the same evidence, but they are going about interpreting the evidence based on their individual beliefs, ideas, and perspectives. And it's an important topic, and it's contentious because it is about a topic that is beloved, the origin of the United States, and it involves national identity and our current circumstances and interests in understanding. Personally, I'm not a fan of the term revisionist history. For me, the work to tell a more complete, less biased modern history of Texas is not revisionism in the way that most people take it. For many people, it plants the idea that the history is being toyed with and changed. The way I look at what I'm trying to do, that's not my purpose. But the act of revising the past tales of Texas history to remove or revise or call attention to bias and bigotry, that's not attempting to change fact. In fact, the history that is needed really does demand an adherence to truth and justice. Some people get their feelings hurt when you share some unfortunate facts about their heroes. And I get it. The old saying, never meet your heroes, is a good one, and for a good reason. You're often going to be disappointed. But this is where the problem we face today comes from, or at least in part. History is not concerned with worship, as a professor told me. Our job is not hagiography. We're not here to just create things that make things look good. History is about accuracy and understanding. Now, if you admire Jim Bowie, now that's just fine and dandy. You are free to exalt and praise him for whatever virtues he had. But at the same time, don't be threatened when facts about his criminal and often bullying past is shared. He did some things that even back then were just outright illegal and wrong. That's not to attack him. Some people actually do use it for that. That's another issue for the next episode. People do want to use these facts to use them in an attack against the state today. But that's, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But... I want you to not feel like you're being attacked when it's pointed out that in addition to fighting for Texas independence, he also profited from the, even at that time, illegal transport and sale of human beings. We live in a time in which we are excessively polarized. And it's really just been that way for a long time. That's why I gave the example of something written in the early 90s, talking about how, or we've come and Actually, not that far we, that we've come since the 1960s. This division that we face. And in ways, that's part of what we're dealing with here. It goes deep. The divisions are deep in our past. 
It sometimes seems like just because it's so more available and accessible, it's always in our face, and we have a constant news cycle. I mean, we could just pick up our phones, and now we can see all these things that are happening and how we're attacking each other. It seems like it's worse, but the divisions have deep roots. Now, my purpose, my goal for the Texas History Lessons podcast is I'm not doing this for any group. I'm doing it for literally for everyone that has an interest. And in that sense, I strive to be apolitical. That at least is the goal. You know, have an ideal and try to meet it. I might not always make it, but I'm going to try. I make the podcast for conservatives, and I make it for liberals alike. No, strike that. I'm not making the podcast for conservatives or liberals. I'm not personally indifferent to the current issues that we're facing as a state and as a nation. But I don't adhere to any tribalistic infatuation with any of the parties. James Sweet uh, himself, somebody that's not unfamiliar with controversy related to history, he's the president of the American Historical Association, and he wrote, We suffer from an overabundance of history, not as method or analysis, but as anachronistic data points for the articulation of competing politics. I really, really agree with that statement. With that in mind, I want to talk about a little list that I found. It's a code of conduct for historians. It was made for professional historians specifically that I think should be kept in mind. It was created by Susanna Lipscomb, who is a historian at the New College of the Humanities. And in it, she said that we should use evidence to support your interpretation and seek to understand that evidence correctly. But at the same time, do not willfully present evidence out of context. And you especially should not use it in a way that the lack of context will render the meaning of the evidence different, unclear, or in a way that can be manipulated. Don't pull a quote from a source that supports you with its language when it's not even talking about what you are talking about, unless you're trying to draw an analogy, and that's a different subject. Do not cite evidence from sources that you elsewhere discount. Oh, if you say that this source is unreliable, don't use it if it has a statement in it that supports you somewhere else. And don't waste readers, listeners, students' time by using unsubstantiated sources. And if you are going to reference something that does not fall strictly into historical guidelines, make it known that this is folklore. This is word of mouth. This is something that was known or shared, but not able to be backed up historically. She encourages people to triangulate. You should search really hard for evidence that might undermine, as well as corroborate, your hypothesis. For example, if you're going to say that slavery was not the cause of the United States Civil War, you better be aware that there's a ton of evidence that from the time leading up to and at the beginning of the Civil War that points somewhere else. Don't ignore it. You don't get to cherry pick 
the evidence you use to create a narrative that not based in fact. And you should try to avoid what's called assumption creep. Do not just allow assertions to move from possibly to probably to definitely. Do not build these layers of interpretation on a foundation that is already rocky. And this all kind of leads to don't just go out to try to share a history that you're just trying to prove a point. Don't use history to prove your present day ideal. And don't necessarily rely on the secondary assertions of other historians. Always, always go back as close as you can, as deep as you can into the original sources. Use the primary documents. And also try to guard against what's called confirmation bias. You got to interrogate the facts anew and try to bring fresh eyes and fresh analysis to the facts. Don't mold the facts to your point of view. It's not acceptable in science and it's not acceptable in history. And you should also try to look at your argument and try to look at it deeply and root out and resolve, as Lipscomb says. Find the problems with your internal inconsistencies in your argument, because that's going to cause a problem later on when people review what you're talking about, and they'll see the flaws. And use good resources. Cite the resources so that you can go back and share them if questioned about where did you get this. You know, archival call numbers, publication details, page numbers. And th those are pretty good guidelines, I think, which, if followed, will lead to some pretty decent results. And I think we're going to take a quick break here on the pause, and we'll get back and finish this episode and lead into what we're going to be dealing with in Part 6 of Lesson Zero as we're nearing the end of this, and we're going to get back to sharing stories about Texas history. Now, next up, we're going to be looking at some of the problems and disagreements that exist today and consider some examples of what happens when you don't follow these guidelines. And how do we deal with all of this? It's in the public arena. It's used in political issues. What are we supposed to do about that? We're going to be looking at some pretty out there in the open controversies that have happened in recent Texas history and uh, wrestle with it. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't necessarily have any of the answers. I don't claim to. But we'll examine a couple of things, and some people will be surprised, maybe, at where I come out on some of these things. So, I want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks to Derek McClendon for providing the theme music, as always. Go check him out. He has been out on the road sharing his music with everybody that will listen. So check him out wherever you listen to music, and you can follow him on Twitter and then on Facebook to see where he's playing. I want to thank everybody that supports the show by clicking that link and buying me a cup of coffee. My Patreon supporters, thank you. I appreciate it. But 
again, mostly, I just want to thank everybody for listening and everybody that does share the show and those that have been supportive. We'll be back next time with some more interesting things to talk about. So take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. Adios.